As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them. He will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a a colt, fowl of a donkey. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed cried, Hosanna of the son of David, blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple. Courts and drove out were who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chargers and bent, bent benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you will you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and are the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were ignited. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, yes, replied Jesus. You you never read from the lips of the children and infants, you, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and where he spent the night. Ah, What a great job she did. Thank you. Well, good morning. We are on Palm Sunday, which the significance, many reasons is significance, but uh, this now takes us to what is arguably the most important sequence of seven days in the whole Christian calendar, right? What's historically been referred to as Holy Week, where beginning with Palm Sunday today, where Jesus enters in to Jerusalem, uh, fulfilling multiple prophecies while doing so, kind of inhabiting all those different prophecies, sets off in motion now that which will culminate with Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And as I was kind of doing my own reflections this year on Palm Sunday, um, I was trying to focus specifically on this day, but it's kind of a little bit of an embarrassing admission. I was trying to kind of put it in its place with everything that happens in this Holy Week. And uh, here's the embarrassing admission. I was having trouble remembering what happens on which days of this week, right? And you'd think after 50 Easter's now, uh, 50 Holy Weeks, I'd be, I'd, you know, with my profession, I'd have that down pretty cold, right? Um, what happens on which days? Um, I think I could have like filled in all the things that happened for the most part, but not on which days. And certainly it gets clearer as Friday gets clearer, right? <laughs> we, we all know what happens on Friday, right? Which uh, just to be clear, too, we have a Good Friday service in here at 7.30 on Friday, so I'd love to invite you again here um, on Friday as we commemorate and reflect on the importance of what that day is. Of course, we for sure know what happens next Sunday, right? We will be here, Resurrection Sunday, celebrating that. 
But I just found myself kind of being drawn into the story again, um, trying to like really relive the moment of what each day represented and to uh, reflect on it as a whole, right? Of what happens on Sunday, why is that important? What happens on Monday, why is that important? What happens on Tuesday, why is that important? How they fit in with each other? And I found myself gravitating away from what I was going to speak on specifically on Palm Sunday, though we will start here and end here, and really feeling like maybe this would be a valuable uh, reflective exercise for all of us to kind of go back through sequentially and remember starting today, what is important about today, and then each day of this upcoming week, what happens and why that's important. So I'd like to invite you into that as well. I'd like to invite you to perhaps uh, take today's reflection where we'll look through each one of these days and maybe you can kind of in a pretty direct way, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, leading up to Friday, you can kind of reflect on what's happening on each of these days and really join Jesus in the story. Right? We Baptism Sunday a couple weeks ago, we looked at Romans 6 where it says, we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Um, there's something about what he's doing that we can be and should be, I think, connected to. So that's what we're going to do. All right. Uh, so let me give you the let me give you the overview first. If you can take up this next slide, Sergio. Um, so we're in the, we're in the book of Matthew. We've been going through the lectionary readings, which don't always go chronologically, um, but match the different church seasons where we're at. So let me give you if you're if like if you're note takers, is going to be one to take notes if you want. So if you even want to like, take a picture of that, I can give you this slide if you want. This is the overview of all of them. Um, so we'll just look at the Matthew accounts of Holy Week. Uh, truth of the matter is, to kind of fill in all the details of each one, you got to crisscross between the different Gospels to kind of fill in the fullness of it. But I actually think if you're trying to piece together what happens in all seven days of Holy Week, Matthew actually probably is the most comprehensive of all of them. There's something in Matthew about each of the days that happens, something significant about each one, each of the days. And so I'm not going to say much more on this slide other than just if you want to take a picture of that, if it's helpful to have them all in one place at the, one, at the same time. And then we're just going to go day by day. Um, um, through what happens on each one of the days and some of the significance. Sound good? So let us go to, let's start with today. Let's go to the next slide. Let's start with Palm Sunday, Holy Week Palm Sunday. All right. We just um, got, we just shared in a reading that began with Palm Sunday, and we may not have noticed it in the progression, but actually part two of that reading was Monday. We'll get to that in a moment. So what what is significant about this day? So if we say this now in a couple minutes instead of the whole sermon, when we're remembering Palm Sunday, what are we remembering? Here, here's what I've been really reflecting on on this um, in a way that's just mystical, mind-blowing to me. You know, if you go to the very beginning of the book, very beginning of the story in Genesis, we see a triune God who creates all of earth and all that is so important, and human beings in particular, who are created in God's image. And from the very beginning of the story, we see that God creates us in love, for love, but God also knows that because we have our own free will, because we have our own choice, we're going to botch things up. Right? I mean, this is, this is kind of understood from the very beginning. And so from the very beginning of the story, God knows that God's self is going to have to enter into the experience as a human being. And so that's, of course, the incarnation. That's the story of Jesus Christ. Where this becomes significant for Palm Sunday, as you, and we've read many of these, if you've been here in these excerpts throughout Matthew, as Jesus is moving through in his public ministry, he's regularly consistently healing people, right? Freeing people from bondage of different kinds, you know, uh, physical, spiritual, emotional, all kinds of healing. But there's always this kind of like really interesting thing. After Jesus will heal somebody, the person's so excited and they say, I want to go tell everybody about you, right? And what does Jesus usually say after he heals somebody and they want to go tell everybody? It's kind of odd. What he usually says is, no, don't tell anybody, not yet, not yet. And it's, it's always a little bit peculiar, right? Like, what, 
wouldn't you want everybody to know who you are? But part of this is connected to the larger story. There's an unveiling that's happening. Jesus knows that when the full dimension of who he is is fully revealed, because he's telling the disciples who he is, but he's not talking publicly about fully the, the full nature of who he is as the promised Messiah. There's just a reality that that's going to be so threatening to the powers that be that it's going to set into motion his death. That was always going to be the case. And so Jesus is waiting until lining it up with the Passover, which is when, you know, when, when, we're, when the passage we just read. Historians guess that Jerusalem probably had about 50,000 people who lived in Jerusalem, which is not too different than the size of like Humble Park, right? So it's kind of interesting to think Jerusalem would be about the size of Humble Park. When Passover would happen, when Jewish people would come who followed the God of Israel from all across the known world at that time, another 200,000 would come in. So you'd go from 50,000 to 250 for uh, a week. And so Jesus, part of God's choreographed kind of entrance declaration of who God is, is to align with the Passover week. So here's where we're getting with, with, with Palm Sunday. This is the first time in the gospel account that Jesus fully and publicly says, here's who I am. Palm Sunday is the first time that publicly and in a fully acknowledging the weight and depth and breadth of what this means, Jesus says, I am indeed the Messiah, which is the Hebrew term for the promised and anointed king that would come to bring deliverance and healing and salvation. So Palm Sunday is really significant because Jesus knows that as he embodies now and inhabits this promised role of Messiah, that all the things are going to happen. There's going to be worship, there's going to be adoration, there's going to be wonder, there's going to be intrigue, and there's going to be threat and, and um, the, the, the feeling of those in power needing to kind of move quickly. So Palm Sunday is kind of like lighting the match for what's going to happen, you know, between now and Good Friday. He fully is announcing who he is. Um, the other just detail, I think I include this on here. Uh, this is it's just in terms of historical kind of chronology of this. It's also interesting to consider um, the last time Jesus was publicly seen was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So in a lot of ways, most scholars believe that's a big part of why the people are lining up at the streets. Um, there were all these healings and miracles that Jesus did that only small groups of people had seen. But the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, as you would imagine, um, that caught fire, right? So everybody, like La people knew who Lazarus and Mary and Martha was. So for Lazarus to have literally died and then literally been raised from the dead again, the, the reputation of Jesus was spreading like wildfire. So, so there's this kind of like gap between when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and now he's entering in on Palm Sunday. And so this says to the whole world, right? Of course, people are having all different kinds of reactions or understanding who he is. But in terms of from Jesus' perspective, this is Jesus finally and firmly publicly saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one who comes to change everything, who comes to bring heaven to earth. So that's some of the significance of Palm Sunday, right? Okay, next one, Monday, which we also read this. Monday is, so this is Jesus' first move after announcing that he is the Messiah. The first thing that Jesus does is overturn the tables at the temple. And I think there's just a couple things, and all of these are worth individual sermons and deeper reflection, of course. But when Jesus overturns the tables, I think he's doing at least two different things that are important for us to remember as we reflect on this whole week. For one, Jesus is showing have to like keep myself disciplined because like my mind goes my mind goes so fast on these things but there's this kind of interesting notion of reflecting on what does it mean that God is wrathful what does the wrath of God mean and 
For me, the easiest way to understand what the wrath of God looks like is to look for when Jesus feels wrathful um, because Jesus is the full embodiment of God. And the only two times we really see Jesus be wrathful, maybe you could say three, when children are in danger, we talk about this passage a lot in Matthew 18 when Jesus says, if you harm a child, better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and drop to the bottom of the sea. That's pretty crazy talk from Jesus, right? That's, you see him wrathful when children get put um, at, at, at stake. But then you also see he gets wrathful when the poor are exploited materially and spiritually. Um, and, and a whole lot that can be said about this, but the, the emphasis that was in that passage we just read, Matthew in particular, um, Matthew's account of the turning of the tables, Jesus specifically goes to the dove's table. And so you've got 200,000 people coming in for Jerusalem for Passover to make sacrifices. And if you could afford it, you would buy a lamb. That was the highest expression of understanding. You're, you're showing understanding, but you understand sin and the need for that to be covered. It's connecting to the larger story of the Passover when blood was put on the doorposts and the death angel passed them over. But if you couldn't afford that, there was a sliding scale that all mattered. You just did what you could afford sacrificially. And if you had no money whatsoever, I mean, if you were destitute, doves were, or pigeons were, the sacrifice you would make based on the lowest economic tier. And so there's something that Matthew in particular picks up that Jesus just burns when he sees the exploitation of the poor who are here to worship God <laughs> during Passover. And so Jesus flipped that tables over. It's like not so much that people are selling animals for sacrifices as much as it's being done in an exorbitant way and it's prohibiting people from coming in. To say it in the positive, I think the Matthew version shows kind of, Jesus shows in a couple different ways, like when we're together in the presence of God, two of the things that Jesus highlights here, one, he uses that, that prophecy, that passage from Isaiah, where Isaiah says the temple, the place of God, is meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Right, so we see kind of in this extensive passage of Jesus, and there's multiple accounts of this, when Jesus flips over the tables, he's reminding everybody that when we collectively come together in the presence of God, it's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Right, that all people can come, all people can be seen and experience the presence of God in an uninhibited manner emphasizes that. And then this passage that we're going to come back to right before we receive communion together. Uh, I, I think this is Matthew's way of showing us what Jesus is communicating, that when we're together in the presence of God, one of the premier signs of the presence of God should always be healing, that it's a place of healing. Um, it's so interesting that even as there's this like constant friction with the religious leaders, we see it's the blind and the lame who come to him at the temple. They're not thrown off by Jesus flipping tables. They're not scared of the unveiling of that wrath that's there. They see that wrath exactly what it is, a holy God that wants this place accessible to everybody, a holy God that's come to burn away all the bad things and to create room for uh, uh, the presence of God, the life of God, the healing of God to come. And so for Matthew, these two things kind of summarize what Jesus is saying about the temple, that A, you get the blind and the lame who come and they're healed by Jesus. And then this other image, this is always an image for the gospel writers that they, I don't know that they understood in the moment, but they came to understand that when the presence of God is moving, that usually those who can see it the best and the clearest are children. That they don't have all the defense mechanisms, all the things that get in the way that, <laughs> that um, confuse the picture. They can just see the goodness and love and beauty of God for what it is. And so this image on Palm Sunday, this is actually Monday, but you know, the, the palms were happening on Palm Sunday as well. But on Monday now to have these children running around the temples, um, singing, um, shouting to, you know, Hosanna, um, 
to Jesus, to the son of David, understanding that this is the, that, that connection to the son of David is important because that's saying even the kids get that this is the fulfillment of a thousand years of prophecies in the Old Testament, that they have seen God in God's purest form in the person of Jesus. And we sang Hosanna already. We'll sing it again at the end. Hosanna, it's a real interesting term. Um, it, that's not a translation. That's not what the word would have been said in Hebrew, and they just use the same word here. Uh, Hosanna just simply means save us. Will you say that with me? Save us. Um, and one of the reasons that that word seems to take on importance during Holy Week is, and this is kind of where we're going to go as kind of a summarizing thing through all, all these six days. If, if we ask it this way, what does God hope happens to us during Holy Week as we travel with Jesus? I, I think the, the clearest answer would be to have, in the most simple of ways, and yet the most profound of ways, that we see that we need to be saved by God. That on every level of our sin, from the things that would pull us away from life to the fullest, from the larger systems and structures of evil and oppression, from our own kind of native inclination towards selfishness and self-centeredness, all of it. We need to be saved from all of it. And so when you see people saying Hosanna, or especially in this picture when you see kids singing Hosanna, it's meant to be kind of this like really pure thing where they're running around saying, I mean, and it's kind of cool. It's beautiful because they're little kids. It's not like they've even done terrible things yet, right? I mean, probably stole M&Ms from their sibling or something or started a fight that they shouldn't have. But I mean, th their record of wrongs is not that huge yet. But even for them, there's this just beautiful simplicity of saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Like this is God in God's purest, fullest form. This is love. This is somebody who has come to liberate and to save us. So the kids are running around with palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Really cool, beautiful image. And we'll kind of come back to that um, as we prepare for communion. But let's keep moving through the week. Uh, here's the most kind of dense one. Let's go to Tuesday now. This is the one that I think without a little bit of study, it'd be hard to kind of put together everything that happens on Tuesday. Um, I, I'm going to include, this is, this is uh, um, so we read today, uh, Matthew 21, but we didn't get, get quite here. This is when it, there's a third vignette with a fig tree. And then here's what happens next. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he's teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing th these things, they asked. Who gave you this authority? So now you can see how long that one goes, Matthew 21, 23, all the way through chapter 26. So what happens on Tuesday, according to Matthew, takes five chapters. All right, so where some of these, like, right, we did Monday in 11 verses, we did Tuesday in, like, 10 verses. Wednesday is going to be, sorry, Sunday, Monday. So this is Tuesday now. Tuesday is, like, five chapters, all right? So I include this verse to give an overall heading. What happens on Tuesday is that Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders of the day. And the question for them is, what gives you the right? What gives you the authority to say that you know these Hebrew scriptures better than we do? Right? What gives you the right to say, you know more about Yahweh God than we do? And of course, Jesus' answer is, yeah, you've got a distinct advantage when you actually are God. Right? This gives you an insight into scriptures when the whole thing is pointing to you, when you, when you, when you are the actual living word. Right? You, are, you are what the whole thing is about. That's the simple answer. But there's five chapters of intense theological discussion that all happen on Tuesday. And when you thumb through these, and I hope on Tuesday you will, um, when you thumb through these, you see, I mean, it's amazing kind of the scope of things that are covered. But perhaps the most famous trilogy in this section that happens on Tuesday would be Matthew 25, where Jesus tells three parables in a row. The first one is ten virgins who are preparing and waiting in expectancy for God to come back. 
So this is Jesus talking about the coming kingdom and how he's the fulfillment and how someday he will return, make all things new, all things right. Second parable in Matthew 25 is when Jesus tells the story of the master who gives bags of gold to people, one bag to one, two bags to another, five bags to another, asks them to invest that. So this is Jesus' way of talking about because who he is, who he is. We need to take what we've been given by God and invest it for the sake of the kingdom and participation with Jesus. Then finishes that with the parable of the goats and the sheep, of the necessity of living out our faith in such a way where we're consistently and materially responding to the needs of those who are in vulnerable positions. So that's, I, when I kind of read and reread those, those are the three that really jumped out to me. But there's actually quite a bit of, as you can tell, five chapters worth. And when you're just reading through, you wouldn't kind of pick this up, right? That chapter 21 is Sunday and Monday, and then 22 all the way through 26 is happening on Tuesday. But that's what Tuesday is about. Tuesday is about Jesus making clear to the religious authorities, but not really for them, it's for everybody. Uh, because Jesus, there's a lot of people who took Judaism seriously. And Jesus is saying, I'm not challenging that. I'm just telling you, it finds its fulfillment in me, right? And so the, I am the one. I am the ultimate and final authority. I am God's very self. I am God in the flesh. What I'm about to do is the culmination of everything that we have been talking about as a triune God through the Old Testament up till now. So this is, some theologians, theologians call this the final manifesto from Jesus. Um, these final five chapters is how Jesus finishes off. These are his final public remarks, all happening on Holy Week on Tuesday. Track with me? Kind of fascinating, right? All right, let's move to Wednesday. We went through this passage last week, and I thought Benjamin did great with this, so now we put this in the chronology of Holy Week. On Wednesday, Jesus has had a very intense week. Palm Sunday was very intense. Flipping over the temple, the tables of the temple on Monday was very intense. Going, you know, 10 hours of theological banter with the religious authorities on Tuesday was very draining. So Wednesday is a day of reflection and retreat. Jesus takes his disciples, comes back with them to the home of Simon the leper. And that's where, at least according to Matthew, there's this unnamed woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. And so this is, this is the big event on Wednesday, the the her seeing him, and, and of course, this is so beautiful the way Jesus remembers her. He says, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so this ability for her in real time to see what's happening with him, what he's moving towards, to see his majesty, his beauty, his splendor. Again, it's, it's a very similar response. What she does, I think, is very linked to that verse we looked at where it says the kids are running around with palm, palm leaves saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. I think it's like another version of the same thing. This is an adult who sees what the kids see, that this is the one who's come to save us. This is, the one, this is God's very self who's going to self-sacrificially give of God's very self, who's going to really die and take on evil and sin and brokenness onto himself and raise again. Like at some level she seems to be, there's some part of that that she seems to like really understand. And that's, that's the highlight of what happens on Holy Wednesday. Tracking? Thursday, this is, a, this is where kind of everything's going to go down. Um, Thursday, a whole lot happens on Thursday. This is what's going to ultimately culminate in his, in his arrest leading to Good Friday. This is where, so the thing I, I would kind of aggregate all this around on Thursday, this, this, is, this is Jesus' final day with his disciples. This is where he communicates kind of his final, whereas Tuesday was kind of the more public final discourse from Jesus. Thursday is the final words from Jesus to his disciples. And John is the one who does the slow play-by-play play play of the washing of the feet. That's kind of 
seems to be the main event that happens in the upper room before they receive communion together. And that's where um, you know, kind of the central thrust of Christianity, Jesus, these are Jesus' final words to them before he's going to be arrested. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Right? And so in a way that really shouldn't be surprising if we see Jesus for who he is, the final thing Jesus says is, I am love. I have shown this love to you. Now you are to show this love to each other and to the world. Right? It's a different way of saying love God, love neighbor. And Jesus demonstrates it through this kind of shocking exercise of the washing of feet. Um, but the, the larger point being, this is, this is the final word. Right? If, you, if you've walked for Jesus for three years and you're about to be sent off as his apostles, as his ambassadors, as his representatives, this is the final thing he wants them to know. This is the new command. Love. Right? Sounds like such a simple word. Sounds like something we should be able to wrap our head around. But what Jesus is continually reminding them is, when you get a sense of divine triune love, it changes everything. Changes everything, right? And so for one last time, he embodies this through the washing of their feet, and then we'll t receive communion in a moment. That's the final thing they do together is receive communion. We'll look at that Matthew passage of communion in just a moment. And then from there, the sequence of things. This all happens on Thursday. Judas betrays him. Um, Jesus now knows it's only hours before his arrest is going to be, so he spends kind of one agonizing last time in the Garden of Gethsemane where his fellow disciples all fail him as <laughs> they can't even stay awake. You all know the story of that. And then coming out shortly after that, he's arrested. That's what um, finishes up Thursday night. All right? Friday, Good Friday. We all know what happens. I won't, I won't even say. I, I, we, we, the, the, these are some of the things that happen on Good Friday. It's, there's long accounts of Good Friday in all four Gospels. Uh, when you follow the flow in Matthew, um, Matthew, as other gospel do, writers do, emphasizes that it's an illegal and secret um, uh, 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 trial, essentially. Like the leaders get together on Thursday night in the middle of the night. They totally break the law on how they do this. So every time in any culture where there's oppression and injustice in the incarceration system, <laughs> we know Jesus himself fully experienced that. It was totally a sham the way that they put this together in the middle of the night on Thursday. So it starts with a secret illegal trial. You get this kind of lengthy account with Pilate where Pilate tells the crowds that they can either release Barabbas or Jesus. And the crowds now have fully fomented around Jesus needing to be executed. So Barabbas is released instead of Jesus. And then, you know, the really gruesome but important um, vignettes that happen where he's beaten, he's mocked, he's tortured. Um, it's, it's brutal, right? Um, all that's happening. And then ultimately on Friday, Jesus then dies on the cross. And then last one, we won't get into Resurrection Sunday because we know that's coming next week. But let's do Saturday. This is, there's not a lot. Uh, many, many call this Silent Saturday. There's not a whole lot um, that's talked about. Matthew talks about kind of the, um, the religious leaders, how nervous they are because Jesus said he was going to die and be raised three days later. So they actually kind of believe him. They're freaking out. That's like one of the few vignettes we get. But this is the one day where the body of Christ lies in a cave. It's, 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 it's kind of got its own special meaning. It's kind of an in-between time, right? That Good Friday has happened. Jesus is dead. The other side of the story we know on Sunday he's going to raise. But Saturday becomes kind of that, that in-between time, right? When you're in between life being hard and you're trying to put your trust in the promises of God. Um, I think Saturday is important because this is kind of an interesting idea. It, you kind of don't really need hope 
if you're not in a hopeless situation, right? Uh, hope's not really necessary when everything's going well. Hope is most necessary when you're facing daunting, terrible realities and you're doing your best to trust that the resurrection power of Jesus is going to be made manifest at some point. But Saturday kind of represents that day where everything seems dire and everything he said doesn't make sense anymore. And everything you put your hope in is shaking and feels unstable. And so at that level, I think Saturday represents something really important too. It's another thing for us to reflect on in this upcoming week is I'm sure some of us are kind of in that Saturday point where we're doing our best to put our hope in the promises of God. We're trying to believe that what he said is real. But if you go based on what's all around you in this moment, it seems kind of hopeless, right? That's kind of what Saturday represents. So there, 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 there we get a sense. That's, that's, you know, each of the Gospels takes a disproportionate amount of space of their book to talk about just what happens over these seven days. So Palm Sunday, which is today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, Silent Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday next week. So I hope that's helpful. I really would encourage you to kind of maybe use that as a guide for yourself this week as you reflect on that. And um, I hope it also is a helpful way to kind of get ourselves ready for communion. Um, and we will, we will receive communion twice this week. We'll do it again at Good Friday service. But as we get ready for it today, um, I would love for us to kind of imagine the significance for the disciples in this. Um, but I would like to come back to this. I would like to come back to that passage from Monday. So if you go to the next slide, uh, Sergio, I'd love to, one more time to kind of reflect on what Matthew pulls out from that scene of the cleansing of the temple. And uh, I, I'm kind of finding this to be a helpful uh, preparatory thing for communion as we receive this today. Uh, again, Matthew says, even as all this chaos is happening, tables are being flipped, the blind and the lame came to Jesus, and Jesus healed them. And at its simple level, at most kind of foundational level, what I see here is the, the gospel accounts once again emphasizing that the, the most important element to salvation, to liberation, to freedom, is just simply seeing our need for it. To seeing our need for it and seeing God's desire to bring that healing to us. Right? I just think there's a thousand ways we can get ourselves off track when preparing to receive communion, thinking we're not good enough, thinking we're not smart enough, thinking we're not living out our faith in a strong enough way, carrying regrets, all these kinds of things. When we focus on those things, it can really take us off course. I think just the beautiful simplicity, the blind and the lame who were there, when they saw Jesus, they said, we believe he's love. We believe he wants to heal us. And they came to him. And that's it. They believed he was who he said he was. They believed that they were welcome in his presence. They believed that he could heal him. And he did. What a simple yet profound way to prepare ourselves for the gift of communion, right? To believe that God is who God says God is. To believe that God is welcoming us to God's table. And that God is giving God's very self to us in the form of the bread and the cup. And then maybe a different way to say the same thing. Children, children tend to have an innate sense of who's safe and who's not, right? When you watch little kids around somebody who's not safe, like they kind of pick up something's not right and they come close. But the reverse is true too. They know when somebody is safe. And I just think that image that Matthew kind of connects to the blind and lame being healed, this image of the children running around joyfully, gleefully shouting, this is the one who saves. This is the one who saves. This is the one we have been promised. 
is also kind of an invitation to us to come to the table with a sense of wonder, a sense of joy, a sense of hopefulness and trust that, again, that God is who God says God is, that God has come to free and to save and to extravagantly give of God's love to us. So we are now going to receive the gift of communion. And so here's kind of the sequence of how we'll do this. I'm going to pray for us, and I would, what I'd like us to try to get kind of in tune as much as we can, posture-wise, to be ready for it. Then we're going to, after we pray, we're going to go ahead and invite you to come up and grab the elements and come back to your seats. Then we'll re- re- read a confessional together. We'll read the communion passage, and then we'll finish out in worship. So um, let's take a couple of minutes just to center ourselves, to posture ourselves. So if you would just kind of join me as I just kind of lead us in a reflective prayer. Dear God, here we are. A bunch of us in this room in person, a bunch of us virtually and through podcast connected. We are here on Palm Sunday, 2023. And yet we are connecting ourselves to a real story that happened 2,000 plus years ago. Where Creator God, the triune God of love, entered into the human experience, took on flesh, lived among us, taught, healed, touched, loved, welcomed, and then set off on this course of Holy Week, making clear, making plain that you are indeed the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has come to save and free to redeem, to heal. And so we use that word Hosanna now, that cry as a way to kind of ready ourselves for the gift of communion. When we say Hosanna, when we whisper Hosanna, when we sing Hosanna, we are lining ourselves up with all those who have gone before us and all those who will come after us in the recognition that we need you that there's a bunch of things we can see that we need to be saved from and there are probably a whole bunch of things we still can't see that we still also need to be saved from. And so as we think of our own authentic ways of saying Hosanna right now, and that this is where I just kind of want to prompt you to kind of fill in in your head and spirit kind of what makes sense. What does save us, O Lord, mean to you right now? Do you think of kind of personal mistakes or sins that you carry with you that need to be confessed and forgiven and cleansed? Is that what you think of when you think of save us? Is it uh, maybe less behaviors and more of just an honest admission of your internal gravitational pull to be self-centered or disconnected or overly ambitious? Some of us, maybe when we say Hosanna, we realize that's what we need to be saved from, the, the, the gravitational pull that takes us away from the way of the Christ, the way of the Lord that we're designed for. When you say Hosanna, save us, maybe it's from pain and hurt that you carry inside of your emotions, inside your soul. The recognition that somebody that's wronged you could result in you becoming bitter and hard-hearted or an offense that's been done that permanent unforgiveness is like so attractive 
or just pain and difficulty that just feels like it's never going to go away. Sometimes that might be how they think of Hosanna. I need to be saved. Maybe when you think of how you'd say Hosanna, what comes to you first is the larger forces of evil in the world that oppress and harm and create unequal and unjust realities. Maybe when you think of Hosanna, you think of the need to be saved from the ways that the brokenness of our world manifests itself. I think there's probably many more ways to even think of this, but I'm inviting you to say Hosanna in your own way right now. That when you come to receive the gifts of God's love made visible through the bread, through the cup, that you would be able to say in your own words, in a way that feels authentic to you, yes, God, I say with the chorus of witnesses that have gone before us and the chorus of witnesses that have come after us, Hosanna, save us, save me. We need you. Everything you did this week, everything you did on the cross, all the power and resurrection, I need it all. I'm thankful for it all. I'm thankful for the extravagant love of God. Hosanna, save us. Amen. All right, well, with that, I would love to invite you just to come and grab the elements and go ahead and head back to your seat. So we're thankful to Elder Maria for bringing the bread today. And so there's bread there. There's cups of juice in the uh, wooden container. So just go ahead and line up on either side. Just grab it, come back to your seats, and then we will corporately receive the gift together. communion. It's certainly for you, but it's also for us. Certainly you are saved, but so are we. Together we are saved. So part of that we now uh, engage in a communal confession together. So if you don't mind joining, standing up if you're able, um, let us read this confession together as we corporately um, present ourselves before God. Read it with me if you will. God of love and mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. As we reflect on the Son of God traveling through Holy Week, teach us to see like we have never seen before. In the same way that you invited Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God and to be born again, we ask you to invite us into the same transformative experience. Oh, Lord, help us to see the ways in which Holy Week changed everything forever. We pray that we will now meet you powerfully at your table, remembering your extravagant love for each and every one of us. Amen. And now as we look at Matthew's account of the communion, on, as we now remember that on Thursday before kind of everything happens, uh, let's use these as a way to prepare ourselves for this. So Jesus took them to the table in the upper room. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this, this is my body. Let us receive the bread, remembering that this is the body of Christ. Then Jesus took a cup. And when he had given that, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which has poured out many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's receive to prepare ourselves to receive the cup poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, we're going to sing Hosanna again. And let me, let me bring us one final time to this image that we looked at in Matthew 21 of the children running around. It says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And the chief priest and the teacher of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children in the temple courts running around saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, but Jesus felt like that was exactly what was supposed to be happening. So I think we're going to have some kids running around during the song to remind us of that scene. But may we all have a childlike wonder as we sing Hosanna, trusting that this is not something to be sullen about or down about. This is the best news ever. Hosanna. God saves, and we are in desperate need of it. Amen? This is, this is a really beautiful image. Seeing y'all waving these around and the kids running around. Thank you all for passing these out. I'm especially loved. I got four of them, so feeling spiritually superior. Thank you for that. Well, as we prepare to go out with the benediction with a good word, I, I think this image of the children running around with palm leaves, seeing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is the one. This is God. This is the God who's come to save us. Let us have a childlike wonder, curiosity, faithfulness this week. I'd encourage you, invite you each day to reflect on what Jesus was doing and just in a childlike way say, in what way is this the God of the universe showing God's self to us as the one who saves? How, like a child, do I receive the gift of this to see this gift? So let us, let us capture this moment in our hearts and carry it with us all week. Children running around saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord our God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.